God, if uh, the entire world crumbled, if everything around us failed, you would still be, you would still be faithful. We'd still have reason to sing. Uh, we love you. We are thankful that you are, Jesus, you are alive, and we have reason to sing, and we have a hope not just for this life, but for the life to come. Would you fill us this morning with um, a fresh amazement at grace? Um, help us to wonder that you are mindful of us. You who spoke and everything began. Uh, you care about us individually. You've knit us together, as it were, in our mother's womb. And you know every single hair on our head, every trouble of our hearts. And so draw near to us as we draw near to you. Through your word, would you speak to your people? Encourage us as we're faint-hearted. Uh, give us wisdom where we lack it. Help us to see you high and lifted up this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a joy to be with you, and I uh, look forward to being in God's Word this morning. Before I, I jump in, uh, last week I had a chance to give you a kind of a family update on Mrs. Bays and her condition, and earlier this week, uh, Mrs. Bays went to be with the Lord. Um, so it's a peculiar thing as, as believers, as Christians, you know, because the sadness is on this side alone, right? So there's um, there's a reality biblically that, that Mrs. Bays has entered into her joy, that everything her heart hoped in uh, and all the years that she trusted in Christ, she now knows fully and completely. And, but there's a real loss that we feel on this side. And, and so uh, I just want to kind of pull you into that. I want to remind you to pray for Mr. Bays. Uh, he's got a lot of people around him loving him, including us. And uh, if you want to be a particular service to, to him, you can, you can see me or Pastor Chris and um, there'll be a service for Mrs. Bays on the 13th, which is a week from uh, Tuesday, and there'll be a visitation from 1 to about 1.45 in the afternoon, and then a service at 2 o'clock to celebrate her life. And we thank God for her life, her legacy, for the imprint she made on us as a church, and if you knew her, for us as individual believers and followers of Jesus. So please join us in praying for her and um, grateful that as we open God's Word and as we, even as we're in a topical series, that it's not, we're not here just to present information. You know, we're not here just to, in some sort of academic exercise, but by God's grace, even this series, it's a little bit more topical, a little bit more apologetic, seeking to give answers to questions culturally and otherwise. It's all in an effort to bolster the, the faith that we have in God's Word and in the God of the Bible, who we believe is because of his creative work, gives our life inherent meaning and value and purpose. And so this morning we're in week two of this Real Talk series. Last week we looked at Can We Trust the Bible? So I encourage you to listen to that if you haven't. It was just kind of a, a way to prime the pump a little bit for um, just increasing our faith in God's Word. And it's certainly just a, a start of that exercise. And my encouragement would be that you take the time and personal study uh, to continue to study yourself I'm reading a book this week, uh, would highly encourage this book as well, by a man named John Lennox. He's an incredibly smart man. He's a physicist, uh, one of the most brilliant scientific minds alive today. And he wrote a book called Can Science Explain Everything, which I unashamedly borrowed for the title of this message. So, um, but I'd encourage you to read that book. It's a really digestible version of a very massive topic as it relates to science and some of the answers that we as believers should equip ourselves with. But I want to share with you a story that he shares in his book. He recalled a situation early in his scientific career. He was in his 20s. 
when he was at a dinner and engaged in a conversation with a Nobel Prize winning scientist. So if you can kind of picture the scene, uh, John Lennox now in his probably 70s, was in his 20s, a young, bright, scientific mind, and he's sitting at a dinner table quite literally with a Nobel Prize winning scientist. So the Nobel Prize winner and some of his academic colleagues sought to pressure John Lennox after some conversation. It was clear that that John believed in God, even as a scientist. And this Nobel Prize winner didn't want to have anything to do with any conversations about God. So what happened after this dinner conversation is they pulled John into a side room and kind of pictured like a dark study is what I pictured as I was reading this story. And this Nobel Prize winning scientist, along with some of his um, his academic bully colleagues, came in to basically pressure John to to give up, relinquish his faith in God, or else it was going to do irreparable harm to his career as a scientist. And this is one of the comments he made about this interaction. By God's grace, he didn't recant his faith. He said, I'll just put my, I'll put my fate in the hands of God, as it were, for my career. So he declined um, relinquishing his faith, and he states this. He said, the situation put steel in his heart and his mind. So there's a way in which, like in that moment of kind of opposition where he felt like his faith in God, his resolve to, to face the onslaught of culture that would call him to, to put away his faith uh, seemingly with, uh, with replacing it with science, that he said, it put steel in my heart at that moment to equip me for a lifelong, what has turned into 50 plus years of being a, a massively well-known scientist and a believer in the God of the Bible and in the Lord Jesus. My hope, pastorally, is much the same, is that this series would put a little bit of steel in our hearts. There'd be something that would kind of urge us to, to increase our faith in the Word of God and also be able to engage culture in a meaningful way in these areas that are so significant. You don't have to be alive very long to realize that Examples abound of those who want you to dismiss your faith in replacement of science. And it creates this kind of false dichotomy. The message is essentially you either believe in God or you believe in science because they're mutually exclusive. You can't do both. And that just doesn't match history. It doesn't match the story of reality even, which I'll get into a little bit this morning. And so before I dive into this morning's topic of can Science Explain Everything. A couple things I want to do. I want to point you on our website. There's a landing page now for this series. It has a ton of links, uh, books, resources used in the series that you can get your hands on. Some you can view online. Uh, some you'll have to buy and order yourself. For those of you who are college students in this room or even high school students, if you have a college student, uh, there's a book on the back table for you. It's called Surviving Religion 101. I mentioned it last week. It's by Michael Kruger, a New Testament scholar. Um, those are for you to have for free if you will read it. Now, don't grab it just because your friends are grabbing one and you don't read books and you're not going to read it. Don't take it home and let it sit on your shelf. If you're going to read it, take one. I want you to have it. We want you to have it. It's a gift from us to you. Particularly to equip, Michael Kruger wrote this as letters to his daughter, who's a student at UNC Chapel Hill, under Bart Ehrman, who's one of the foremost and loudest New Testament critics in the world today. So pick up one of those books. Uh, if you have a student, maybe just make note of the title. You can order them their own and see that resource page on our website. Can science explain everything? 
You know, many would say that belief in God is either unnecessary or unreasonable. Many in academia would say that science and God are mutually exclusive, and it creates this false dichotomy. If you believe in God, you can't or must not believe in science. If you believe in science, you can't or must not believe in God. But science and belief in God are not mutually exclusive. And let me just give a little bit, just a brief history. I don't have time. I have much more notes than I can cover. This sounds familiar. as what the story was last week. So think of it this way. This is just one example. So Nobel Prize winners who have been tracked from 1901 until 2000, 100 years, is a book, 100 years of Nobel Prize winners. 65% of Nobel Prize winners are Christians. 72% in the field of chemistry are Christians. And so just plainly, you could look at it and be like, well, if Christians can't believe in science, then how do we address, how do we answer the fact that some of the most notable scientists in history, in fact, believed in God? Not all Christian in an orthodox way, but had faith in God. Let me just read a short list. Galileo, the Italian natural philosopher and astronomer, the one who's probably credited with the scientific method that all of us used in science class, right? Blaise Pascal, French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, and Catholic theologian. He says this, says, Jesus is the God whom we can approach without pride and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. Love that. Robert Boyle, one of the founders of modern chemistry. Sir Isaac Newton, widely recognized as the, one of the greatest mathematicians and physicists of all time and one of the most influential scientists was quoted as saying this, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. Michael Faraday, known as the greatest experimental scientist ever, boldly proclaimed his faith on his deathbed. Gregory Mendel in the field of genetics. Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, as one historian said it this way, he says, far from being at odds with science, faith in God is one of the motors that has driven science throughout history. A faith in God has been the motor driving scientific discovery and improvement. And one of the sections of the Bible I spent time reading this week was in Job. In Job chapter 38 through 41, it's kind of a fascinating exchange. God is basically rebuking Job for his lack of faith and his questioning of God's wisdom. And he asked Job all sorts of really rhetorical, unanswerable questions. But one of the things that God says in the midst of this one-way dialogue, he says this in chapter 38. He says, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? So as God recounts the myriad of subtle and significant ways he governs the universe, you can't help but be struck by the fact that in the midst of all of it, there's these observable things like laws and rules that echo the words of science. Like God is a rational God of order. He's ordered the universe in such a way that we can have scientific laws that actually align with how he created things. And remarkably so, we can actually use science to learn more about God. And that's really been the trajectory of history. The people have used science in an effort to explore and even understand what God is like. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? The answer is God. We talked a few weeks ago from Psalm 19 about the fact that the theater of the cosmos, like the whole universe, 
is saying something about God. Psalm 19 says it this way, verses 1 through 6. I'll read a part of it. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, every single voice of the heavens is heard, and their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Like a witness in the courtroom of the cosmos, the heavens, the universe declares that there is a God. Witnesses to his existence, testifies to the glory of God. Another way to say this would be that God makes himself known through what he has made. And we see that in Romans chapter 1. So Christianity holds to the belief that there is a God who has created everything and holds all things together. We also believe that God is not merely a powerful creator, but he's a loving father who has revealed himself in creation, even in our conscience, and most importantly, invisibly through Christ. Bruce Milne said it this way. He says, if we suppose that the creator God is loving, the likelihood of revelation becomes overwhelming. After all, what loving parent would deliberately keep out of a child's sight and range of reference so that it grew up ignorant of its parents' existence? The heavens declare the glory of God. God's invisible attributes, his divine nature, his eternal power have been seen through what has been made. Johannes Kepler, the famous German astronomer and mathematician, best known for his laws of planetary motion, said it this way. He said, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony imposed on it by God, in which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. Louis Pasteur, a microbiologist, famous work for his vaccine development, once said, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. Science and faith in God are not mutually exclusive. Far from burying God, science makes the work of God come alive in more detailed, specific, and brilliant ways. But those who oppose Christianity, would, many would say something like this, why should I believe in God when science can explain everything? That's not really science. That's what some would call scientism. It's really a religion at that point that you believe can explain everything. Atheist philosopher and mathematician Bertrand Russell says it this way. He says, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. It's from his book, Religion and Science. Is that true? Can science explain everything? I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about a few things that science can't explain. So, if you've known me for any amount of time, you might have heard that I love lasagna. And I love particularly my wife's lasagna. Haley makes a great lasagna. So, if Haley made a lasagna, and we had it in our home, and I invited a team of scientists to my house to look at this lasagna, there's many things they'd be able to do. They'd be able to figure out every single ingredient They'd even be able to figure out how the composition of each individual ingredient. By the end of that discovery, they would know a whole lot about that lasagna, probably more so in many ways than what I know. But there's some things that they wouldn't know, namely this. They wouldn't have any idea why the lasagna was made. They'd know a lot about it and what it is, 
but they know nothing of his purpose or the motive behind Haley who made it. It's a borrowed illustration from John Lennox's book. But the why question, some of the most fundamental questions for children can't be answered by scientific exploration and natural methods. You can't answer the question of why and meaning and purpose and value even or elusive to one that's merely looking for science to explain. The first thing is science can't provide an answer for is to the purpose and meaning of life. Physicist and author Sean Carroll calls human beings blobs of organized mud. It's a little bit of a crass way to articulate much of what scientists who don't believe in God believe. Just products of chance and time. Really meaningless and purposeless, purposeless in life. So as mud blobs, we have been fashioned impersonally by natural processes and by nothing beyond or above us. That's what the idea of transcendence is. There's nothing above or beyond us that's done anything to shape who we are to give us any sort of value. We're just products of chance and time. Richard Dawkins, a famous biologist and author, many of you have heard of him. He's a devout atheist. He says it this way in his book, River Out of Eden. He says, the universe has no design, no purpose. It's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. This is actually really intellectually consistent with a worldview that says there is no God. A worldview that says that nothing and nobody created everything, which is, could be called materialism, doesn't provide life with any sort of inherent meaning or value or purpose. So let me just ask you a question. Maybe if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, do you believe your life is meaningful? If you don't believe in God, then on what basis do you believe your life is meaningful? That's one of the most significant questions every single human being has to wrestle with. Like, what's the purpose of my life? Why am I here? What am I for? Where am I going? Naturalism, materialism, and human philosophy don't provide an an adequate or even an answer in general to that question. If you don't believe in God, science can't explain this meaning. What about Christians? How do we answer the question of meaning and purpose? As Bible-believing Christians, we believe we've been fashioned by the personal, transcendent hand of Almighty God, made in His image to reflect His nature and proclaim His worth and His glory in the world. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So be clear this, your life, human life, has meaning and it has purpose. Because you've been created by God personally. We've been created by God's hand and we exist for his Glory. And some might say, maybe you don't believe in God, you might say, well, I have a purpose. Like, I might have a purpose in my life. I've dedicated my life to solving the problem of child illiteracy or maybe it's some other humanitarian need, and that's admirable, and those things are needed. But science and naturalism, materialism can't provide a reason or basis for the value of even those things. On what basis do you call even something good? It might be practically and pragmatically good, but ultimately, there's nothing that keeps someone else from saying, your purpose isn't as good as mine. 
There's nothing that keeps us from being able to say that Hitler's purpose of extinguishing the Jews is inferior to George Mueller's purpose of starting orphanages. There's no basis for determining the meaning and value of life if God is absent from the picture. Science can't explain a basis for human purpose and the meaning of life. Secondly, science can't provide a basis for morality. The systematic study of the natural and physical world cannot provide a basis for good and evil. A universe without God cannot provide a justification for morality. So what this doesn't mean is that all atheists are immoral people. There's a lot of good atheists in the sense of morality. But an atheist can't provide you a basis or justification for their morality. There's nothing above them or beyond them that dictates a standard of morality. It's just something from within. And as Christians, that's consistent with what the Bible teaches because we see in Romans chapter 2 that the conscience that God has given us bears witness to a standard, a moral standard. It's written in our hearts. So we believe that every single person has a standard of morality that's etched into their very makeup as human beings. Romans 2, 14 and 16. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, those Gentiles who don't know God. In a, a recent sad but ironic moment, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheistic bio, biologist and author, came under fire on Twitter for a comment he made about Down syndrome babies, particularly unborn babies who had Down syndrome. And he basically said that someone who had a, a fetus in his wording or a baby that had Down syndrome, that they should abort that baby. That's bad news enough. But here's what goes on to happen in this exchange, and he's come under fire for this. He made this statement. He said, it would be immoral to bring into the world, to bring it, the, the baby who has Down syndrome, into the world if you have the choice. It's really unfortunate, just in general, this, is, this comment's being made, but what's really interesting is he uses the word immoral. He's a famous atheist, and he's making a moral judgment on someone else for allowing a, a baby with Down syndrome to enter into the world. He said it's immoral for you to do that. He has no framework to define his or anybody else's morality because God is absent from his reality, from his worldview. Science has no explanation for, ultimately, for morality. And in Richard Dawkins' world of blind physical forces where there's no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, there's no basis for him to claim anything is moral or immoral. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, which is a great resource, would highly encourage you to grab it. She says, to maintain their beliefs about goodness fairness, justice, and so forth, a secular humanist, too, must hold that humans are moral beings, distinct from other primates. The question is, on what grounds? On what grounds do we make moral judgments? And her point is this, is that ultimately the answer to that question can't be scientific. It can't be derived from observation and testing natural processes in the observable world. It comes from somewhere else, somewhere higher, namely from God 
himself. In a biblical worldview, all the energy and effort spent to fight for human equality, to protect the weak, to help other human beings. In fact, our effort even to be kind to other people is rooted in the fact that God has created us to be moral beings. He's the root and reason for all of our morality. Science can't explain or have a root for morality, ultimately. Next thing I would say is science can't explain why there is something rather than nothing in this universe. It's the question of beginnings. Late astronomer Carl Sagan, this is probably the most famous PBS documentary of all times called The Cosmos, asserts it this way. He says, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. It seems like it's like an atheist sort of doxology. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. So for Carl Sagan, it seems like the universe is that uncaused first cause. It's always been around. And the universe somehow gave rise to itself. Well, even if you believe the universe began with some primordial soup or mixture of things, there's no way to account for what gave rise to the molecules, the proteins, the matter, or the energy that set things into motion to produce matter because molecules can't make themselves. No viable scientist will say that molecules can just spontaneously create. They can't. At this point in history, any physicist worth their weight in paper, I don't know, it wouldn't be gold, I don't know what it would be, worth their weight in academia, believes that the universe had a beginning, that it hasn't always existed. And some people call this the Big Bang. And when you read the Bible, there's dispute about just like even the, the Genesis account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there's a pause before he begins to make the different things. And there's question about the amount of time in between when God created the heavens and the earth and it was void and didn't have any purpose and God was hovering over the waters and how much time went by in between the, the six days of creation. But the biblical account of creation is is remarkably consistent with what is known as the beginning of the universe that many would just refer to as the Big Bang. And Christians like to say, yeah, God spoke and bang, there it was, right? This is Christian cliche. We put that on t-shirts and, and that's kind of true. Maybe not the best way to approach that argument, but there's some truth to that because God did speak and it does have a beginning. And Stephen Hawking famous atheist, even said that the Big Bang smacks of divine intervention. Like it smells like it. That's why it met so much resistance when it first came on the scene from atheists, because it just, it reeks of divine intervention. Because I think we inherently know for something to begin, there's got to be a beginner. For something to move, there's a mover. And that's essentially the biblical account is that God is the He is the uncreated creator. He is the one that moved and everything was set into motion. Science and belief in God are certainly not inconsistent with one another. When Christians believe in the beginning God created, God was the cause. And Greg Kokel talks about, like, if you don't believe in God, then you would have to replace the in the beginning with any number of things. And for many scientists, it's in the beginning were the particles. In the beginning were the various sources of things that created matter. Ultimately, you have to have something at the beginning. 
If you don't believe in God, your story has to have a beginning and it has to have a beginner. Not just something, but a paralyzingly profound, fine-tuned something is what this world consists of. And I tried to succinctly, which I, I just really can't, articulate the way in which life as we know it is a it's not just a profound, like it's a disturbingly miraculous miracle that there's life universe. Because everything is so sensitively balanced that if it was off just a little bit, like even the initial force that started the universe, it would collapse shortly after it even started, much less give way to complex carbon-based life or much less something like the human brain that can have rational thought and discover things. Like it's just quite unfathomable that the the universe, the way it is so fine-tuned, could exist without the hand of a beginner. Paul, Paul Davis, a doctor, theoretical physicist at Adelaide University, says the really amazing thing is not that life on earth is balanced on a knife edge, but that the entire universe is balanced on a knife edge. It would be total chaos if any of the natural constraints, whether that be gravitational pull or any number of things, were off even slightly even if you dismiss a man as a, as a chance happening, the fact remains that the universe seems unreasonably suited to the existence of life. One of the atheist scientists that John Lennox interacted with said, this is the strongest argument against atheism, is the way in which the universe, particularly the earth, can allow life to survive. The chances are just insurmountable that that would happen in light of all the conditions that have to be so delicately held together. In his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, atheist Stephen Hawking refers to the fine-tuning of the universe as remarkable. So even Stephen Hawking says this is remarkable. The remarkable fact is the constant of physics seemed to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. For example, Hawking writes, if the electrical charge of the electron had been only slightly different, stars would have been unable to burn hydrogen and helium or else they would, have, would not have exploded. It seems clear that there are relatively few ranges of values for these constants that would allow for development of any form of intelligent life. This is an atheist saying these things. And then he goes on to say this. He says, most sets of values would give rise to universes that although they might be very beautiful, would contain no one able to wonder at that beauty. They wouldn't sustain life. Human beings couldn't exist. And that kind of pushes us back to our worldview, that the heavens declare the glory. And you being made in God's image, you are to enter in with the theater of the cosmos to respond in worship. This, is, this isn't... Firstly, it's, it's not a gaining wisdom issue. This is a worship issue. Like if you look at the heavens and see the fingerprints of God, will you worship him? If you had every, every one of your questions answered, would you come to believe in Jesus? And maybe that's kind of going back to last week. Maybe for some of us as it relates to the Bible, it's not an issue that we, that we can't believe the Bible. It's that we just won't. Because the Bible makes a lot of claims upon us. It forces us to be confronted with things we don't want to be confronted with. And maybe the same is true about science. Like if you can genuinely say that you have rigorously tested science and have found 
the evidence wanting for evidence of God, and you've reached that conclusion through rigorous scientific exploration, that's one thing. I still think it would lead you toward evidence of God. But if you've just kind of written off the existence of God because of the many messages and the flood of opposition against the existence of God in culture, let me just encourage you, friend, like don't spend your life trusting in the opinions of others as it relates to the existence of God. Like, taste and see that the Lord is good. Like, get, get your hands on good resources and voices, and there are countless resources and voices, people a whole lot smarter than me, who can give you some ammunition for your faith as it relates to addressing questions in culture, and that's why we're doing this series. But there is life. And the end of his quote that I just read, he said, there wouldn't contain anyone able to wonder at that beauty even if the world was just barely different than it is. But there is life. In Psalm 92, verses 4 through 5, it says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work at the works of your hands. I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. I'll close with this. As you think about every since we come in here, the reason that we, we sing cross-centered songs, we talk about the grace of God and we sing it, and the reason we have this cross behind me is because we believe that, that every single one of us has a problem, and our problem isn't firstly information. It's not an information issue. That every single one of us is born with a predisposition to rebel against God, self-reliance. Like we don't want to follow God. And if you're in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus, let me just submit to you to really consider in your own heart, have you really rejected God? Have you really rejected Jesus because the evidence has led you there? Or is it because you just don't want to? Is it because you you just don't want to submit your life to another? And that's all of our problems. Like the bad news in the Bible is that every single one of us have rebelled against our creator from the beginning. We've said, I'm not going to do it your way, my own. That's what the Bible calls sin. From the very beginning, the product of the result of our sin is separation from God. And the whole rest of the Bible unpacks this story of how God makes right anything wrong about us. And guess what? He doesn't do it through our own effort. Like if you could solve your own sin problem and make yourself right with God, Jesus would never have had to come. And the cross stands behind me as this vivid declaration of the fact that there's been work done for you, but it's not work from your own hands. It's through the hands and the feet, the life lived of a perfect substitute for you. Before Jesus died in your place, he lived the perfect life you could never live. He died in your place as a substitute so that you wouldn't have to be the object of God's judgment because of your sin, because Jesus took it for you. And so the response is, I believe in what you've done for me. I trust in your work. And ultimately, I want to be surrendered to you in my life. And I know this is a lot of information. It's, it feels abnormal. The last week I got up here to preach, and I felt insecure about the message, primarily because we make it our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we're going to get there late October. We'll be in Second Peter. But So why are we doing this? It's because there's a reality that you're going to step outside this week. Even this last week, I've had chances just through people I know and us through friends and otherwise to interact about meaningful questions. People have meaningful questions. They may not pursue the answers in meaningful ways, 
but they have meaningful questions. So we're going through this series to somehow give us some ammunition, encouragement, to maybe light a fire within us to, to study and to think about these things critically so that we can engage the world in a meaningful way. And we're going to get to things that are certainly controversial and maybe helpful, but all of it hopefully will help us engage the world with a little bit more steel in our heart. As we think about next week, just the, the reality of evil and suffering in this world, as we look at sexuality and gender, as we think about these massive topics that cause many to kind of keep God at arm's length, I pray you would equip us with steel in our heart to engage them with the gospel of Jesus. He's the, he's the answer all of us need. Let's pray. Let's pray to that end. God, is challenging. Uh, it's challenging for, for me to deliver um, content surrounding this question in a way that feels fruitful. But I trust you. I trust that even having a, a brief survey of history as it relates to science can embolden us to to realize that our, our faith is not just merely some blind faith without evidence, but there is evidence that you are God. The heavens do declare that you are God and your works are everywhere. And so I pray that, that our faith through this series would be increased, uh, that knowledge of you would be increased, that our earnestness as it relates to engaging the world around us who desperately need to know the hope within us wouldn't just be some casual conversation, but would have some depth to it that we'd feel equipped to respond as to the reason of, for the hope within us. God, I don't have the intelligence or the time or the energy or the personality to somehow persuade anyone in this room to believe in you. If you don't work through your spirit in human hearts, there's nothing of any eternal value that will happen from this time this morning. But what's impossible with man is possible with you. So would you do a work in the hearts of every single person here? There's many in this room that I don't even know. I certainly don't know the, the background of each individual heart, the different barriers to belief in God, and the different arguments that persist in their own soul. And I pray that you would do work today through your word, through the work of your people, through the singing of truth, and just the, the haunting presence of your spirit, in the best way possible, that you chase them down win them over, soften their heart, give them hearts of flesh where they have a heart of stone and reveal the wonder and the glory of Jesus to them. We love you. We thank you for your word. And we pray that we would be people that, that are made glad by your work, that the works of your hands would cause us to sing for joy. And we would say with the psalmist, how great are your works. Oh Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go and stand together. Let's sing one last song.